With the number of Americans 85 or older projected to double to 9.6 million by the year 2030, experts are saying we are already experiencing an end-of-life care crisis. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ira Bayak. Dr. Bayak is Director of Palliative Medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and Professor of Anesthesiology and Community and Family Medicine at Dartmouth Medical School in New Hampshire and author of the books Dying Well and The Four Things That Matter Most. Dr. Bayak, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. It's nice to be here. If you will, paint the end-of-life care crisis picture for us. First, how many people die each year? About 2.4 million Americans die every year. And how many people die in hospitals? There's regional variation, but approximately 50 to 60% of Americans currently die in hospitals. In some places, it's higher. And of that number, how many die in ICUs? Oh, remarkably, fully 20% of Americans die either in or within 48 hours of having been in an intensive care unit. And how many people die in nursing homes? Somewhere between 20 and more likely 30 to 35% of Americans die in nursing homes. How many people die at home? Just about 20 to, in some places, up to 30%. How many Americans suffer from untreated pain? I recently gave a keynote address to the Alliance of State Pain Initiatives, and I looked hard for this figure because I I couldn't believe that the usual figure bandied about is that 40 million Americans live with chronic pain and that many Americans' pain is untreated at the end of life. I looked really hard. It turns out that that figure is low, that in terms of chronic illness, somewhere around 50 to 70 million Americans report chronic pain. Uh, So when they die, they're likely dying in pain. But of the 2.4 million Americans who die every year, it's hard to say. One can say is that pain remains undertreated, particularly in non-cancer patients. I'm happy to report that there's been significant progress in the treatment of cancer pain and that in many, many places now, people with cancer have their pain much better treated. But in non-cancer situations where people are dying of problems of heart failure or, or Alzheimer's disease or things of that nature and have pain related to severe arthritis or other problems, pain remains woefully undertreated. It's probably the majority of people, one could say, have pain inadequately treated. How many Americans who live to age 65 will enter a nursing home? It's been estimated that at least 40% of Americans will have entered a nursing home before they die, of those of, those of us in the boomer generation. There are a number of conflicting trends, that, so it's not clear how that's going to play out. There's certainly alternative living situations being developed, but that may not be a low figure. What are the projections for how many people over age 65 will be living in 25 years? Well, that's going to increase dramatically. There are currently 78 million baby boomers who are getting older every day. I'm one of them. It's expected that there'll be at least 71 or 72 million of us uh, in the year 2030. Would you characterize this picture as a crisis? I think there is a tidal wave of caregiving need headed in our direction. Our, our toes are already wet, and yet, you know, the infrastructure is weak. We have not begun as a country to address these issues. And it's not just health care, but it's certainly health care has a big part to play. 
but it's housing, um, it's transportation. Our nursing homes today are woefully understaffed, and congressional reports as well as privately funded studies have repeatedly shown that there's up to 15 residents in a nursing home for every aid that's available to help with meals at mealtime. A famous congressional study from a few years ago showed that people are widely spread malnourished in nursing homes, not because they can't eat or don't want to eat, but because they need help in eating at mealtime, and there's simply not the staff to do so. And yet, as bad as things are, and they're bad, the nursing homes of today may look like luxury hotels in 30 years. The baby boomers will stress the system in unprecedented ways. And while this is scary, uh, we have ways of responding, but not if we don't start talking about it. Why aren't there more public discussions about quality end-of-life care? In a sense, we're embarrassed, and that doesn't make for strong public action or activism, though you'd hope it would. I think that this all seems so complex and so daunting, and there is such an endemic, ingrained denial or avoidance of talking about dying, of thinking about it, that individually and collectively we just continue to change the subject. In one sense, the physician-assisted suicide debate is ironically a way to not have the real discussion. (laughs) It attracts so much attention, and whenever anybody brings up problems of nursing homes or problems of dying people, somebody changes the conversation to assisted suicide. Unfortunately, in the past couple of decades, the precious commodity of congressional attention or state legislative attention has gotten conscripted by the assisted suicide debate. And it's become kind of a surrogate for talking about how we're going to care for people through the end of life. The problem is it doesn't really advance the discussion. It doesn't really address the roots of understaffing and and financial challenges and the medical education challenges and all the barriers that have gotten worse rather than better about treating people's pain and all of those issues. So there's a lot of reasons we're not discussing it, but, you know, I think it's time as a profession, but also as a society, we have to kind of get over it and start talking about how we're really going to care for one another through the end of life. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Ira Bayak discussing the end-of-life care crisis. Dr. Bayak, how much money is spent on end-of-life care in this country? Oh, a lot. (laughs) Probably a third of Medicare dollars are spent during the last year of people's lives, something like 27% at least. And something like $100 billion or more dollars of nursing home care, $50 billion of home health care. And that is overshadowed by the amount of individual money spent and the, the valuation of family caregiving. It dwarfs that amount. So it's, it's a great deal of medical care as well as room and board during the last part of people's lives. There's a lot of loss of productivity from caregivers. 40 million Americans are providing care for loved ones, and that, that's a big part of their lives. When I talk about this to colleagues, Susan, so commonly someone roughly my age says, you know, we're dealing with that. That's a funny thing. You should bring that up. We're talking about that in our own family. My gosh, you know, my dad's been ill, and he's, he's got Parkinson's disease, and my wife's mother uh, is, has Alzheimer's disease, and we're struggling with these issues. Do statistics reveal how much is spent in the last 30 days of life? Statistics probably do, but I can't tell you what it is. 
In fact, however, in some studies, it's it's in the range of twenty to thirty thousand dollars. The last hospitalization is often in the range of twenty thousand dollars. Are there innovative, cost-effective services and systems that can be put into place to address these issues? There certainly are. We know so much more than we did twenty years ago. There are multiple components to the solution. Obviously, there there are living situations like the PACE programs, the program for all-inclusive care of the elderly, which is able to admit people who are uh, duly eligible for Medicaid and and Medicare and would qualify for a nursing home, but are able to stay home in their own apartments or assisted living facilities through the, the services that PACE provides. There is hospice care, of course, which we think of as you have to be dying to get hospice care, but beyond that, you also have to agree you are dying and you have to be willing to give up curative treatments. But hospice as a model could be easily expanded to people who may be facing the end of life, have an incurable illness, but are actively being treated for cancer or heart failure or any number of health problems, kidney failure and the like. There are the Eden Alternative and the Greenhouse Project, the genius of Bill Thomas, who's developed enlightened long-term care facilities, and the pioneer movement in nursing homes, which similarly staff and, and bring real excellence to nursing home care such that none of us would be in any way reluctant to recommend that to a patient or to a family member or eventually to enter a facility such as that ourselves. So there are alternatives. We know they're cost-effective. And really, we do need to move in those directions. So is there money to pay for these alternatives? There is money to pay for the alternatives. The problem is that it's currently tied up in the status quo. What I mean is you have to shift money from from what we're currently doing, which is basically solely disease-focused care consistently through the end of life, as if death was optional, (laughs) and care focused repeatedly on the hospital and on, on acute illness. We have to find a way to begin to shift so that people have alternatives. For instance, if people have to give up any option of going into the hospital and getting treated for their cancer in order to get hospice care, they don't want it. They're going to come to hospice very, very late. Now, during that time, they're still going to be using insurance dollars and Medicare dollars and public dollars, their own dollars, but they're going to be using it toward the only alternative they perceive as available. If you also provide something like hospice care and home-based care, well, people may, without being coerced, begin to choose to stay home and get their needs met there rather than continuing to come back to the hospital. So there's money. We know that it won't cost more to to use the home care arm, even though it's still comprehensive home-based care, than the hospital arm. But we have to build it. And the building of it, the investment in that is, in fact, a, a new capitalization. What do you think hospice will look like in 30 years? I hope it looks more open and flexible and patient-centered, family-focused, responsive to the needs of anyone with a serious, potentially life-limiting illness. I hope uh, that it serves people in the home as it does now, in nursing homes and assisted living, as well as providing palliative care services in the hospitals, in the ICUs. But I I think we're going to see a pleomorphism of hospice programs and services. And What I do now, having come from a hospice background and base, is hospital-based palliative care. Our team spends a lot of time in the cancer center, but also a lot of time in the ICUs and in the cardiac units and throughout the hospital, even in pediatrics, attending to people's needs. And, And I think that level of responsiveness and flexibility and really being truly patient 
centered, family centered, is uh, the future of healthcare in general and, and the future of the hospice programs that will survive and thrive. What led to your passion for excellent end of life care? Well, you know, I started training as a uh, family practitioner. That's my first boards, and in one sense, I never lost that purview. I see human life through sort of patient and family and life cycle conceptual frameworks or lenses. And I must have missed the lecture in medical school somehow where we're not supposed to care about the experience of people as they die. But it's always seemed to me to be critically important. I was boarded in emergency medicine and practiced in a critical care arena for a long, long time. I just continue to, to try to bring the attention to detail and high standards that we bring to every other aspect of care. I want to thank Dr. Ira Bayak, who has been our guest today discussing the end-of-life care crisis. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.